the number of times I would pick up a magazine or some sort of trade press and things like that, and you actually read that it's the chief information officer that accidentally clicked on that uh, phishing email and compromised the network. They're very clever at coming in. I think we're all human and we're all vulnerable. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of the Business Continuity Podcast. So far, we've been finding out how different people define and respond to fairly traditional forms of disruption. It's been a pretty broad remit so far, everything from freak weather and terrorist attacks to IT downtime, and we'll continue to look at how different people experience disasters throughout the series. But for this episode, we're going to get stuck into a very specific form of disaster, and one that's only come to prominence over the last few years, and is still developing at an incredible rate of change. This week, we're going to talk about cyber. Cybersecurity, and the cybercrime that necessitates it, is at the top of the agenda for IT departments across the world, and for good reason. A policy paper released by the UK government in 2015 revealed that 81% of large corporations and 60% of small businesses reported some form of cyber breach in 2014. So what does any of that mean for the many already overworked continuity professionals for whom cyber has suddenly become a core concern? I, I actually compare um, cybercrime to, to prohibition in terms of the way it's increasing. So you, you've got organized crime out there who are seeing this as a huge moneymaker. There are people whose job it is to, to steal data. And they do this 24-7, 365. Most of us on the other side, it's not the only thing we're doing. And as long as that inequality exists, it's quite lucrative for the criminals to keep stealing stuff. They get a good return on investment. The level that they have to attack at is not huge. And I think the biggest factor is prosecuting them is really, really difficult. So there is some level of impunity there that they're taking advantage of. Cyber is an emerging threat. It's growing fast, and everyone from continuity professionals to lawmakers is trying to catch up. And like so much of the traditional complexity around BC and DR, the main challenge is variety. Different kinds of threats, different perpetrators, different technologies, different methods, different objectives, it's all contained under the cyber label, and that variety makes it very hard to follow the closing advice from the last episode. To keep continuity planning as localised and specific as possible, in order to avoid trying to do too much and achieving nothing as a result. Here's Matt Hogan of the London Fire Brigade. I think what we're finding at the moment seems to be particularly media-driven, to be honest. There's lots of talk about cyber. And I think what's difficult is that there's within that cyber bucket, there's lots of different cyber risks. And there's not a one-size-fits-all solution to cyber. So yes, there's the hacking, phishing, fraudulent element of cyber. For our team, that's not something that we get involved in. Uh, that's dealt with by, by police and security. You know, there is the potential with cyber to affect infrastructure systems, to obtain data that allows you to implement a traditional attack. And I think we need to better understand that cyber risk environment to understand how we treat it. That last point is pretty key to today's episode. We need to understand cyber better. There's a tendency when talking about cyber to frame it in outdated technological terms, influenced more by Hollywood than reality. But most cyber attacks aren't the products of an isolated individual, much less someone typing frantically at a keyboard while a loading bar slowly fills in the background. As we'll go on to hear, most attacks today don't involve any brute force activity at all. Instead, they rely on legitimate credentials, illicitly obtained from an often forgotten source of risk. 
unwitting users. Now, it's not just organised crime groups for whom cyber is big business. Worldwide spending on information security reached $75 billion in 2015, and analysts are predicting it'll reach $170 billion by 2020. The trouble is that the capabilities of expensive security products are often misaligned with the most common and most serious cyber threats. For Rob Dartnell of Security Alliance, a lot of it is technology overkill, and Rob advocates a different approach. I'm Rob Dartnell, I'm the Head of Cyber Threat Intelligence for Security Alliance. Like an increasing number of cyber intelligence professionals, Rob has a military background, and is now finding success applying those conventional intelligence methodologies traditionally used in a military context to cyber security. When I first came into cyber, um, I found my intelligence background was very helpful, um, just to try and understand everything. From my point of view, I generally found there was a lot of vendors doing stuff. Um, a lot of it, when I say stuff, was because it's fluff and it was very unspecific to uh, necessarily a problem. Uh, a lot of it was marketing companies putting nice spins on sexy words. That $75 billion starts to make a lot more sense when you factor in the kind of fear-based selling that Mel Gosling spoke about in episode 2. People are willing to pay a lot of money to insulate themselves from disaster. The trouble is that some software vendors have picked up on a specific word that sounds great in marketing materials, but actually promises a lot more than most software solutions can deliver. Um, for instance, intelligence. Uh, intelligence is a hugely misused word in the industry that a lot of vendors have picked up on, put on their marketing material, and sold extremely expensive seven-figure products on the back of it. However, it's uh, we've certainly noticed in the past six months that actually intelligence, because the importance of it um, is being picked up, um, people are starting to design products that are properly intelligence-based and use proper intelligence methodologies rather than just the term. Now, whether it's a misuse of the term or not, quote-unquote intelligence products are becoming more popular for a reason. The instruments of attack have never been so powerful and yet so easy to acquire and so simple to use. It seems like an arms race. And if organisations are building up their defences, are attackers responding in kind? Well, it's both. Everyone's stepped up their game, really. So your low-level um, attackers now have access to quite high-level and sophisticated tool sets. Some of these pieces of malware come with user interface GUIs, so they're really easy and propagating malware all over the place. Um, rather than necessarily having to go and spend a few thousand dollars on a particular brand of malware, if you like, or from a particular user, they can now rent malware for a number of hours. They can rent, you know, advice for a couple of hours. They can rent botnets, you know, it's a, it's a business. And there's a lot of conventional business and industries that could probably learn from the speed um, that the, the dark web is propagating its wares. Rob talks about how a thriving marketplace for cheap, easy-to-use malware tools on places like the dark web have changed the behaviours of different attackers, particularly at the more amateur end. Where yesterday's script kids would experiment with basic tool sets, basically chaotically throwing scripts against things to see if it did stuff and getting excited over the results, they're now able to interact with peers, build communities, and exchange malware much more easily. Now, if it's that easy for a kid on a laptop, I wondered what fully funded organized crime professionals were capable of. On the other side of things, um, organized criminal gangs are working with quite large budgets. Quite large budgets means that they're able to buy um, talented software engineers. 
um, malware engineers and they are able to go off and buy other pieces of malware to manipulate to their own uh, uses. So organized crime in cyber is huge. We're talking billions and billions of pounds a year. Um, and it will only continue to get bigger. As they get bigger, they earn more money. And as they earn more money, they become more sophisticated. So it's a perpetual motion for them. Um, we are even seeing cases of um, organized crime groups who have access to large slush funds. So when they are able to find uh, market critical information, they are able to go to the stock market and make bets and make money off the back of it. So we're not talking your your friendly um, hacker sending you a phishing email about their cousin who's got 400 million pounds in an offshore account but needs some money to help it come back into the country. Uh, you're talking about highly sophisticated malware engineers and sophisticated business people. There's one particular group that are actually known as the Business Club or the Evil Corp as they're also known. Um, and you know they run themselves as, as a business. They have marketing and PR and accounts and finance and you know all of the different business functions and they got their name because they run it like a business and they make a lot of money from doing it. It was really interesting to me that cybercrime organizations exhibited so much business acumen that they operated with such professionalism. Next to Vicky Gavin's allusions to the prohibition, cybercriminals seemed clinical and emotionless. There was no malice towards their targets, no aggression in their attacks. It was just business. I asked Rob about this transactional relationship between criminal and victim, and how that sentiment was conveyed in the language used in something like ransomware attacks, where the user is required to follow instructions in order to send money to their attackers and retrieve their encrypted files. I think a lot of people imagine cybercrime to be a fundamentally aggressive experience, but it's often not the case. It is very much a case of, we've got you, we own you, this is how you get around it, we'll make it nice and simple for you, crack on. Now Rob actually advocates mirroring this emotionless relationship with cyber attacks from the victim's perspective. Now once again the language around this is important. The experience of being under attack lends itself to an emotional response, to say nothing of the actual consequences of financial cost or data loss. It is impossible not to be emotional when you know that you're potentially going to lose hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of data, face fines, potentially lose your job, all of these things. Um, it's hard not to become emotional. Um, however, you know, if you're dealing with a sophisticated actor, hopefully, fingers crossed, you've got procedures uh, in place to deal with that so it can become transactional. If you haven't and then emotion gets in the way and you haven't got procedures to follow, then all of a sudden your day is going to get a lot worse. It makes a lot of sense that emotion would factor in pretty heavily during cyber attacks, and I think it's a direct product of the uncertainty and anonymity inherent in them. Perpetrators are invisible, they're often in another country, and their actions are hard to predict. Doubly so if you don't know what you're looking for, which, according to Rob, represents the vast majority of people. Knowledge is limited, actually. So people predominantly look at their, their regular LinkedIn posts that pop up or what's in, been in the, the Sky News website that day about hacks. Um, but they really don't understand, a lot of the time, their own attack surface. Um, and they especially don't understand the uh, adversary attack surface. So, you know, what do the attacks actually really look like? And what are the implications of that? So we made it about 11 minutes before our first piece of jargon, and I think we've earned one. The attack surface was a new concept to me, and it's one of the conventional intelligence methodologies that Rob uses to assess cyber threat. 
It's a really interesting exercise, and for anyone even slightly interested in cyber threat prevention, it's definitely worth familiarising yourself with. So attack surface is you know, a conventional thing that's been around for a very, very long time, a couple of hundred years really. It's, uh, it's your avenues of approach. It's what you look like and what they look like. Where in the digital landscape is all your, your infrastructure? What does it look like? What about the digital infrastructure that you don't know that you've got? What are your employees leaking online? How many of your employees have been using their use, uh, their work emails and passwords on dating websites, etc., that have all been owned at some point by various different hackers, and therefore all of this data is out there. Um, therefore, you know it's identifying those avenues of approach, but it's also about understanding what the adversaries are doing and how they're doing it. You know, where are they operating? Where are they operating from? What infrastructure are they using to attack you? What methodologies are they using? How are they doing it? When are they doing it? Who are they doing it with? Then you have to bring those two things together. So in the conventional world, it's known as intelligence preparation of the battlefield. So it's bringing those two pictures together. What are they doing? How are they doing it? And what have we got? And how are we doing our defenses? And when you fuse the two, you pretty much can come up with what your most likely scenarios are, as in how they're going to do it against you specifically. Just because an adversary may attack one particular organisation in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean that they'll do it in exactly the same way with you because your infrastructure and your defences and, and the individuals that you own to, to protect against them are different. So you need to look at those variables as well. It's an incredibly simple idea that lives or dies by the quality of intelligence afforded to it. And I think this is where it's worth clarifying the degree to which true intelligence methodologies differ from more conventional cybersecurity products. In the technology arms race between vendors and attackers, there's an emphasis on change and progress. Conversely, many intelligence methodologies are based on established ideas that haven't changed in hundreds of years. There's a lot of older military papers that have been released around intelligence methodologies, and they, they don't change over the years, you know. Sun Tzu was talking about intelligence, you know, a very, very long time ago, about understanding yourself and understanding the enemy. Um, so yes, you can come up with every new fangled method of uh, defending yourselves, but when you can rely on methodologies that have been based in hundreds of years of practice and have been academically studied as well as practically operated, then why would you differ from something that you already know works? I asked Rob for a practical example. If you're talking about how an ad adversary on your network is going to come at you, you might design an attack tree that will show all of the different stages that they will have to go through to, to get to your critical asset. But in the conventional sense, if you know your enemy is over the hill and you know you're the other side of the hill, you've planned out what geographical route they're going to take, You know what directions they're going to come in from, what weapon systems they might have, where they may become targeted because of choke points. And those pictures and those graphical illustrations are almost identical. It's just that one is digital and one is, you know, a Google Earth image, if you like. So methodologies are completely transferable. Um, and let's not make it up. Thinking about cyber threat resilience at this more strategic level is a great segue into the wider problem with technology-centric security products. That cyber isn't just a technology problem. And from a continuity perspective, you can't just build bigger walls around your organisation. As Stuart mentioned at the beginning of the episode, the biggest threats facing most organisations are the unintentional behaviours of users, and even the most expensive enterprise security systems are no match for a poorly educated staff. There's a fantastic cartoon out there of a, a boxing ring, and there's a guy in the corner, and he's got everything in there. He's got IDS systems, IPS systems, SIM systems, firewalls, everything. 
And then in the corner, you've got a bloke in shorts called Dave. And it says, you know, in the left corner or in the blue corner, you've got security. And in the right corner, in the red corner, you've got Dave, the user. Um, and it's so true. You can certainly bring in user knowledge programs, which are really, really important. Um, but it really comes down to just that person simply understanding if you don't know that person and you are not expecting that email and it's got nothing to do with your job do not click on it there is no need not only are you becoming inefficient in your job you are leaving yourself wide open organizations need to share bad news stories and case stories of other people within their industries if you're a major retailer and you know one of your competitors has suffered a data leak make sure every single employee in your company knows how that happened because I can almost guarantee 90% of the time it has happened because of an employee doing something that they shouldn't have done. So you're giving them real life scenarios of other people that have made those mistakes. Now engaging users in a meaningful way that has lasting effects on behaviour is much harder than it looks. And that's exactly what makes Vicky Gavin's approach to user education at The Economist so interesting. We have a huge awareness campaign here at The Economist uh, because the most likely mode of attack, and I think this is globally, not just at The Economist, is through phishing emails. And phishing emails go out to everybody every day. And so I have spent several years making sure that everybody who works here knows what a phishing email looks like and knows what to do when they get one. And if they forget and do what they weren't supposed to do, who to call. Uh, my, I think my most successful event was our phishing contest. Um, a couple of years ago for the month of October, because October is Security Awareness Month, we ran a phishing contest for everybody who sent us a phishing email. We gave them a raffle ticket for a security blanket. Beautiful handmade quilt, <laughs> but it, it, it captured the imagination. Um, and you know, people were were really good at finding phishing emails because there was something in it for them. It was to their advantage. If I find phishing emails, I can, I can send them in and I get raffle tickets. The reason it worked so well for me is because people were identifying phishing emails for five weeks and all of the behaviorists will tell you it takes three weeks to form a new habit. So if I get people to do something for five weeks, they've pretty much formed a new habit and can now identify phishing emails pretty reliably. On the other side of it, so what did I have them do when they got a phishing email? Send it to the security team. What do I want them to do day to day if they, if they get a phishing email? Send it to the security team. So not only have I taught them how to identify the email or the, the phishing, but also what to do when it happens. If in doubt, get security involved. Simple things to remember. And I, I didn't have to tell people, and I'm training you to do this. It just happens because the awareness activity was designed to, to do the things that I wanted them to do. Um, unlike the usual scattered gun approach, where you get 77 messages over the course of two weeks and remember none of them. Now, to be fair to users, phishing emails aren't always easily identifiable, not least because they might leverage information and credentials previously acquired. Spear phishing isn't always necessarily just one uh, compromise, if you like. Once somebody has a... Uh, internal foothold is it's quite possible for them to start spoofing an individual's email um, or using that email account that they've already got in so a lot of the time you can see internal spear phishing as well so it may look like it's coming from your boss 
but it's really not coming from your boss. Um, and if your boss is sending you inappropriate links, then, you know, go and check with your boss that he really uh, sent that as well. Everyone is being targeted, you know. Don't just necessarily think of your CEOs, but think about your privilege access users, the guys in your network admin team that have got a lot of access. And then obviously the ones you probably are a bit more aware of, your accounts team and your finance team, et cetera, et cetera. It happens on a daily basis. Um, when you've got an, a company of 20,000 employees every single day within your organization, somebody will click on something. 90% of the time, your natural defenses will um, pick up on those things, your, your IDS systems or your IPS systems, but it's the ones that get through. That's where, that's where the pain starts. So after establishing the growing capabilities of cyber threat actors and the impending disaster users are poised to exact on the organization, I wanted to ask Rob about some other intelligence techniques continuity professionals could use to turn the tables and become more strategic in the way they thought about cyber risks. So, here are two of Rob's recommended exercises. First is backcasting, which I think shares a lot of similarities with conventional disaster recovery planning techniques. Working backwards is a um, methodology that I strongly recommend. So it is, you know, a backcasting exercise is what it's known in the intelligence industry. And it's looking at an endpoint and working backwards and seeing what all of the things that have to happen in order to reach that endpoint. And then from that, you will start identifying signposts or signals that you know, you know, if you see this, then it is likely this is what is going to happen. And if this happens, this is the consequence of that. So absolutely, looking at all of your crown jewels, all of your critical assets, all of the major business implications and your um, business areas and identifying worst case scenarios and working backwards from those, it's a fundamental of what you need to do. It's kind of stage one. And second is the cone of plausibility. Yeah, kind of plausibility is one of my favorite things, actually. So it's taking kind of a perceived or an understanding kind of current situation and looking at the drivers behind what might manipulating it and then just changing slight elements. You know, if we're looking at a geopolitical situation, we tend to look at their the military, their politics, finance, et cetera, et cetera. And then if one of those elements changes, so let's say growth doesn't project at 5%, it actually has a negative 2%, you know, What's the end result going to be? What is the most likely scenario based on that? But what's the most dangerous? And you can start moving some of those drivers and then you will slowly see as you construct your, your scenarios and make slight changes how different the, the end results can be. So actually coming up with your perceived um, ideas of the scenarios that you're facing and making some of those changes. So looking at those cones of plausibility is actually quite a, a valuable exercise to do because it really does broaden your understanding of all the different consequences and all of the different drivers that can affect a certain situation. Now, I think the underlying principle of the cone of plausibility can be applied to traditional DR planning too. Several people that I spoke to mentioned that the main downfall of scenario-based planning is the specificity it encourages. People end up creating separate, highly tailored plans to account for minor variations in circumstances. A cone of plausibility exercise represents a viable alternative and it means existing plans can be easily repurposed and reimagined by changing small variables and tracing how they affect the predetermined consequences. However, Rob's ultimate piece of advice, beyond any planning exercises or techniques steeped in hundreds of years of history, was deceptively simple. The secret to intelligence, if there is any secrets to intelligence, is just good people in a room with a whiteboard and a pen, you know, I love workshopping. Uh, we workshop everything. You know, let's just bring in people. They don't have to be experts within a certain area. 
I um, incorporate a, a methodology called the tenth man. Now, normally that is somebody that comes in who doesn't know anything about what you've been discussing and kind of tears your work apart and says, what about this? What about this? What about this? Um, but the other element of tenth man is sometimes people that don't understand necessarily what they're doing. So if you're talking cyber, bring in somebody that doesn't know anything about cyber because regularly that simple way of thinking or that innocent way of thinking, almost like a child, you know, brings up questions you, you just don't think about. And um, that's why it's always important to kind of have those outside influences. And if you're coming up with these scenarios, these cones of plausibility, building your hypothesis, it should not be one person left by themselves. You know, it should be the different business owners sitting in a room with a whiteboard. Go for a day out at a nice spa or something, you know, but that's the way it should be done. There are a lot of parallels with BC and DR planning here. And it doesn't have to be complicated to be effective. A little effort goes a long way. Which is why, I guess, that Rob's suggested starting point for cyber intelligent research was Google. Honestly, you know, a simple Google search. Although a lot of the information and intelligence we get are from closed sources, so technical intelligence from sensors, uh, industry peers, government organisations, etc., etc., um, there are a lot of organizations that write white papers. You know, there's a lot of press releases. There's a lot of good guys who work in cybersecurity that keep blogs that say things, you know. So we know, you know, in the Ukraine, it's quite openly reported that, you know, the malware is Black Energy 3. Um, so there, if you happen to be a CISO at a piece of critical infrastructure that might look a little bit like a Ukrainian electrical distribution center, then you need to start looking at Black Energy 3 and what it does and how it does it and how you protect yourself against it. If you are a banking organization, then maybe you should be going and looking at Drydex and what it's doing and how it's doing it. Um, so yeah, actually just Googling your industry peers and saying this attack and keeping up with just a daily news feed is it's really, really basic stuff and nowhere near you know the complete picture, but it's a start. So, there we are. Cyber is a huge topic, and this episode could easily have been an hour long, but I hope I've managed to boil down some interesting insights and practical advice into half an hour. Rob's intelligence-based approach to cybersecurity is definitely something I'd encourage you to investigate, even if you've already got some existing cybersecurity controls in place. Exercises like the attack surface, backcasting, and the cone of plausibility are great ways to think about risk, resilience, and continuity from a different perspective. So, before we close out the episode, here's one final piece of advice from Rob Dartnell of Security Alliance for organisations looking to improve their resilience over the next 24 hours. Now, Rob's one piece of advice for tomorrow was actually two ongoing recommendations, but they're good, so I'm going to let him off. The first is to foster a climate of transparency with your staff and peers. The more information you share, the easier prevention becomes. And the second is to think about the difference between information and intelligence. I'll let Rob explain. One of the major issues from a conventional intelligence world, which we've struggled with, which everyone knows about, is sharing of intelligence and sharing of information. In history, there's been this need to know, need to hold. So people go, I've got this piece of intelligence, this information, it's really sexy, it's really important. I'm going to hold on to it. And they don't share it. But there's another principle which works against need to know and need to hold, and that's all-informed network. And if you're talking about a similar industry being attacked by something in a particular way, you know, share that. But don't just share the news story. That's information, that's not intelligence. Intelligence is the so what, it's the assessment, you know. Let's say you're a retail and you look at the target attack in the US and you share that with all of your employees and you say, you know, this is how it happens. That's fine. But what the important bit there is what it means to us. You know, if we were attacked in this way, 
we would also likely suffer losses similar to that of Target around this amount of hundreds of millions. Therefore, it is likely there will be job losses. This will impact you, blah, blah, blah. It will have this kind of impact on our share price and therefore an impact on our dividends. Make it valuable to, for people to understand and make sure they know why you're telling them that information. That is intelligence. Sharing a new story, that's information. Two different things.